This week on Grape Encounters Radio. Six weeks ago, we aired a landmark edition of Grape Encounters Radio recorded at the home of legendary winemaker Michael Mondavi, arguably the most renowned living winemaker in America. In the seven and a half year history of this show, I have never had more requests by listeners to repeat a particular episode. So, for those who have been eager to hear it again, and those who were disappointed to miss it when it originally aired, I'm pleased to present this encore presentation of Michael Mondavi, Uncorked. Peel me a grape, crush me some ice. Skin me a peach, save the fuzz for my pillow. Talk to me nice. But in 1966, when the son of Italian immigrants teamed up with his two sons to create the family-operated vineyard bearing dad's name, everything changed. And this humble family vineyard became a catalyst that would eventually transform the Napa Valley into one of the most revered wine regions in the world. Today, that family's name is one of the most recognized and respected monikers synonymous with consistent quality, innovation, determination, and an unparalleled legacy in winemaking. Well, it all began 50 50 years ago, and today Michael Mondavi, along with his son and daughter, continue to keep the legend alive. So as I sit here on Michael's patio, sipping a couple of amazing wines while gazing out over the breathtaking Napa Valley, I'm both humbled and honored to share with you this Grape Encounters exclusive, one-on-one with Michael Mondavi. Sitting right here face-to-face with Michael Mandavi, the most incredible view, drinking incredible wines. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this broadcast of Grape Encounters. It is a wonderful opportunity to be with you, and we're enjoying a great day. We're going to get some rain in a little while, which we all need in California. Thank you for coming. And you just go out and walk in the rain, right? I love it. I've been missing the rain these last few years. (laughs) (laughs) What am I looking at here, Michael? This is the vineyards in the uh, Oak Knoll area, right in the heart heart of Napa Valley. To the east are the Atlas Peak Mountains. To the west is the heart of Napa Valley in the Oakville Bench area. So this house has been your residence for a pretty long time then? I've had the pleasure of being here since 1971. We'll probably only be here for the rest of our lives. We have the luxury of great views down to the bay to the south, and we're surrounded by vineyards and just open space. We're very spoiled and love it. So let's take things back to really the beginning for you. It's probably not the beginning, but it may be the second stage of your wine life, because of course you grew up in it from the time that you were born, but you went away to college and you were recruited into the family business. Was that an ambition or were you like a lot of kids that are ready to go out on their own? Were you ready for a different adventure? Well, I was, but I had a a wonderful mother and father who both outsmarted me. (laughs) Okay. When you tell a kid, I want you to do this, there may be some resistance. When you tell a kid, oh, I don't want you to come in the wine business. Business. I want you to go out and find some other career that you really enjoy. My mother particularly said, be anything, be an architect, be an engineer, go in the farming business. Don't come in the wine business unless you really want to. And the more they said don't, the more I said I want to. They totally outsmarted me. Wow, they tricked you. They sure did. <laughs> 
Okay. Those tricky parents. <laughs> so at that time, the Mondavi brand wasn't a big brand. We were Chateau No Name. That's it. Nobody knew Mondavi from Mogan David. They'd had no idea what it was. So many people talk about your father, Robert Mondavi, but from the very beginning of the Mondavi wines, you were there, and I think you actually partnered with your dad, did you not? Yes, that we had three employees in 1966. My father, myself, and one other. And my father was the vision, the experience. I was, along with my father, the energy. And my father knew that we had the soil, the climate, the grape varieties in Napa Valley to produce wines to compete with the great wines of the world. But nobody done it consistently. And he said, Michael, we can do this consistently if you're really dedicated to do it. And it was such a pleasure to be there at the beginning. And it was funny because when I'd go to places and say, I'm from Napa Valley, you know what they'd say? Where? Where? <laughs> yeah. Did exactly. you say Apple Valley? <laughs> okay. Napa Valley had no meaning back then. Mandavi had even less. Wow. So it didn't take too much conning to get you into the wine business. But what were you prepared for? What skills did you bring to the table? The skills I brought to the table were very limited, with one exception. I had the luxury, from the time I was six months old, of growing up literally a hundred yards from the Charles Krug Winery. Wow. And from the age of about five on, my babysitter was the cellar master. My jungle gym were the tanks, the barrels, the equipment, and the winery. They let you just go in there and play. And they'd call the cellar master and say, Mikey's coming over. Will you watch him? <laughs> that and was it. That was it. That was your babysitter. And then for high school jobs and college jobs, I would work in the cellar. Before I could work in the cellar uh, in high school, I had to work in the vineyard because I wasn't old enough. I had to be 18 to work in the wine cellar. So I spent a lot of time in the vineyard understanding that. And then I worked in the maintenance shop to learn how to put things back together or build things. And then I worked a year in the laboratory when I was 17, running analysis of the wines. And then at 18, I could get into the cellar and start working with the winemaking. So when did you taste your first drop of wine? Probably when I was about 18 months old. My grandmother was taking care of me. And as you start teething, my grandmother didn't want any of her grandchildren to have milk in a baby bottle at night because she was concerned it would hurt their teeth. So she would do about six ounces of water and a half ounce of red wine to just give it a little color and flavor. <laughs> and I think I had my first wine at about 18 months. I, I'm chuckling because <laughs> I had a similar conversation with Mike Gergich, who has been a oh. very important part of the Mondavi story. Oh, Mike was a great guy. He was my second employee. And I had the pleasure of working with Michael for four years before he went to Chateau Montalena. So he tells a story about how his mother decided it was time to wean him off of breast milk because he was getting a little aggressive. So she would mix the milk with wine in a wooden bowl at the table, right? So yeah. kind of a similar kind of a thing. Absolutely. And one of the neat things of the Europeans, mothers and fathers, is they taught moderation of wine, of food in the home. And you didn't, at the magic age of 21, have all of a sudden a license to drink. If you drank to excess as a young person in a European environment, you were insulting the family. You were right. embarrassing the family. And teaching that moderation eliminated binge drinking, eliminated a lot of problems with alcoholism that unfortunately a lot of people don't don't understand. If you could change the law right now and allow young people to drink one glass of wine and order it out at a restaurant, but it was limited to one glass, and we lowered for wine only the drinking age down to 16 years old, would you go for that? I would like to think about it, but what I would go for is the way the law was before. The law was public purchase and public possession. What that meant is I, as a, as a child, could not go 
out and buy wine, beer, or spirits. I could not publicly, personally possess it. But if I was either out at a restaurant or out in the park with my mother and father or guardian, and if they offered me a sip of their wine, I could have a sip of their wine. If they offered me wine at home, I could have wine at home. It was not a public purchase, public possession. That was written into the law at repeal, 1933, because the country's fathers and litigators back then knew they had to teach moderation in the home. I really think we need to get back to the basics. The family, the parents have the responsibility of teaching the children moderation. There's a wine in front of me. This is the M. Let's talk about the wines that you're making now and also the reinvention of the Mondavi name because the family sold the business some years ago and a lot has been written about how you've reinvented yourself. Tell me about this wine and some of the wines that you're making. Well, what's so much fun now is flashback to 1966. My father and I started the Robert Mondavi Winery and it was creative. It was exciting. We were introducing people to a new wine in Napa. We're essentially doing the same thing today. The beauty is I'm back to my roots, essentially, to spending time in the vineyard with my son and daughter. Foods have changed dramatically in the last 10 and 20 years. We have fresher foods, wonderful ingredients. The wines need to be more elegant and delicate to complement those beautiful fresh foods. So more old world style now, lower alcohol, lighter wines. But I noticed the M wine is a wine that when you taste it, it seems like it's been in the cellar for a number of years. It feels like it's aged perfectly, but it's only a 2012. If you have perfectly mature grapes, the skin, the seed, not just the sugar and acid balance, the wines young will embrace you. You don't have to wait five or 10 years to begin enjoying that wine if they're harvested at the exactly right time to give that elegance to a young wine. So what happens when we lay them down? I mean, will they lay down for a long period of time? Should we bother or? If a wine is beautifully balanced, it will age for decades. Where I really learned that was the 1974 vintage Cabernet Sauvignon was known throughout the industry in Napa Valley as the best vintage in 20 or 30 years. The 74 Cabernet Reserve today is not as enjoyable as the 74 Napa Valley Cabernet, which was a softer wine. It wasn't as big, it wasn't as strong, but it was more beautifully balanced. And what I'm learning is the balance of a wine is far more important to the enjoyable characters of the wine, young and old. Balance is most important not strength. Wow. We're talking to Michael Madavi sitting on his personal porch, drinking one of the many beautiful wines that they're making now. I also have an incredible Amarone that oh. you've poured, and I could just sit and drink that all day, too. Well, Del Forno Romano is a wonderful family in the Verona area, and they produce, I believe, the best Valpolicellas and Amarones. The balance of these wines is something that we're studying. We have the pleasure of importing them, but we're studying. We work with uh, Romano and his sons in trying to understand how do they get such perfectly balanced grapes to make these elegant wines. Wow. Okay. Well, we will be back with more Grape Encounters Radio coming to you from the home of Michael Mandavi. More Grape Encounters after this. If you make April your month to do some California wine tasting, your friends will surely be green with envy. That's because throughout the month of April, California wines aren't just red, white, and rosé. In April, you'll discover just how green California wines are, too. April is California Wines Down to Earth Month, and wineries all over the state are celebrating the state's leadership in sustainable wine growing with fun and educational events everywhere you turn. 
California has one of the most widely adopted sustainable wine growing programs in the world, with more than 70% of California's wine growers and winemakers committed to practices that benefit the environment, employees, and neighbors. And best of all, the quality of the wine is simply superb. From Earth Day wine and food festivals and green wine trails to vineyard hikes and horseback rides and special tastings, find out more at discovercaliforniawines.com. Just click on the tab that says April is Earth Month at discovercaliforniawines.com. For years, I seem to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Nestled between world-class Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo wine countries, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the humble heart of the Central Coast. With access to endless wine country adventures, including wine and olive oil tasting tours, artisan farm experiences, food, wine, and cultural events, historic Atascadero's cozy and oh-so-friendly atmosphere make it the perfect home base for Central Coast tourists. Discover more about the heart of the Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. He's back, and he's not alone. Your Grape Encounter continues with David Wilson and a little help from his friend. We are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and what a huge, momentous privilege to be sitting face-to-face with Michael Mondavi. Michael, I can't even imagine what goes through your head when you look out over this valley and see what happened. And I know a lot of people are responsible for the evolution of wine in California, but I can't imagine that you ever imagined that what you and your dad were doing way back when in the 60s would have such a huge influence, not just on the California wine industry, not just on the Napa Valley, but really the world. How often do you ponder this? I try not to ponder it too often because it's scary. If you had told my father or myself what Napa and the wine world would be like today, had you told us that in the 60s or 70s or even in the 80s, being blunt, we'd have thought you were smoking dope. (laughs) because it is so far beyond anything that we envisioned. We knew that Napa had the soil, the climate, the grape varieties, the skill and the passion to produce wines, to complement great foods and to compete with the great wines of the world. We never envisioned how the world would embrace Napa Valley. Why did it happen? You don't need to be an expert to know what tastes good. If you're tasting a red wine and it tastes good to you, there's a 98% chance that the wine experts will also say, wow, that's a good wine. Trust your palate. If it tastes good to you, enjoy it. If it doesn't taste good to you, send it back. The winery doesn't want you to have to drink a wine you don't enjoy. That is so true. So many people, I think, feel pressured to be able to identify certain tastes and characteristics in wine. And I suppose that's valuable to the extent that if you're looking for another wine that is going to be similar to one that you like, it might be good to know what it is that you're tasting in that first wine that makes you so happy. But in the end, it really does 
does just come down to you like it or you don't like it. End of story. Nobody's going to put you in jail for not being able to describe it. Absolutely. If you really enjoy white wines and you want to have your white wine with a steak, enjoy it. If you enjoy red wines and want to have your Cabernet with Petrali Sole, enjoy it. Wow, you're giving people a lot of permission here. When you go to the restaurant and you order a filet, do they say, you ordered the filet, you have to have Brussels sprouts? <laughs> exactly. No. Enjoy the wine you like with the food you like. You know, the funny part about it is that if you had in your hand right now a great big juicy hamburger with lettuce and tomatoes and onions and whatever else you like on it, I would challenge you to be able to describe what you're eating. You can't. Absolutely. Because we don't right. dwell on that with food. We only dwell on it with wine. And when you sit in tasting rooms, so often you see people struggling because they feel this pressure to have to describe it. And it's okay just to be quiet and say, wow, it's yummy. When you look at a piece of art, can you describe your feelings? A great metaphor. As you were talking about the hamburger, it just popped into my mind. A few weeks ago, I was having a wonderful hamburger and a bottle of the Animo Cabernet Sauvignon. And people say, you're going to have an $85 bottle Cabernet Sauvignon with a hamburger. Damn, that was good. And that's such an important point because we go into a restaurant and we'll order an entree and let's say the entree's $30, $35, a modestly priced restaurant yeah. in Napa. And then we'll order a bottle of wine that's $150. It totally trumps the cost of the food that you're eating. In some way, I think in people's minds, there has to be parity between the value of the food and the value of the wine, even though they might like that great big juicy burger better than Chateaubriand. Yes, I think that the neat thing, particularly about the younger people today, is they don't have to ask permission. My generation were always asking permission. Is this the right wine to have with this food? Is it the right glass to put the wine in? Styrofoam cups work if you need it. <laughs> okay. And really, if you enjoy very casual foods, in fact, many of the younger people today, the millennials, are not going to restaurants to sit down for three and four hours to have a meal. They like to go to two or three places, have an appetizer here. Enjoy great wines with your small bites. As a matter of fact, if you spend as little as possible on the food, then you can spend a lot more on the wine. That's my theory. But also, when you buy the $130, $150 bottle of wine, you're usually going to be sharing it with four people. That's a good point. Or maybe even six. All right. So why is it that when we walk into a restaurant, they bring the wine list? And I would say, just observing people, eight out of 10 times, they will choose the wine and it will be at the table before they've even decided what they're going to have for dinner. It's an interesting fact, I think, that the wine is driving the meal, not the other way around. And I think that a lot of times, unless you're going to a really great restaurant that people have been planning for a month or so, finding the right wine isn't all that easy. A number of the restaurants will have either a very limited list and you'll struggle to find something that you recognize or know, or they'll have such a long list, it'll take you 20 minutes to get through it. If you can find a wine that you like and order it, wine should help the conversation of friendship. Wine should not overtake the meal. Well, a very good friend of mine who is a winemaker likes to say, a good wine should be a social lubricant for conversation about everything except the wine. 
your friend and my wife will be great friends because my wife's attitude is wine needs to be number three at the table. Number one is the friendship and the communication. Number two is the food. And number three, wine is to enhance the enjoyment of the conversation and the food. No doubt about it. Why is it that when we go to a restaurant, we're only handed one wine list? With people loving wine as much as they do, one would think that if four people sit down to a table, four people will get the wine list. And then it, the battle ensues for who's going to choose the wine? Who's going to taste the wine? We need to change all this. You've changed the wine world. How can you change this for us? It's through educating the restaurateur and would love the idea of having four people with four wine lists. And many of the restaurants today have beautiful selections by the glass. Just because someone wants to drink a Sauvignon Blanc and you want to drink a Pinot Noir and I don't want to drink a Cabernet doesn't mean we need to buy three bottles. The wines that are available by the glass today in most restaurants have a very good selection. And you should drink the wine you enjoy, not necessarily the wine that somebody else enjoys. And thank you, Greg Lambrecht at Coravin, yes. for helping that along. We can now share great wines in restaurants by the glass with people where a restaurant would not consider offering that wine by the glass before Coravin. Now, you have an awesome wine cellar. We were just down there. And thank you so much for sharing that opportunity with me. How often do you go down with a Coravin and, and check out some of those wines? Do you? Oh, about once every two weeks. Really? Okay. And I have at least half a dozen wines that are standing up on a little sideboard that I have taken one, two, three, or four glasses out of with the Coravin. And I know they'll be fine for the next few months. But if just my wife and I are having dinner and I wanted to have a wonderful 1986 Ornelia, I'm not going to open a whole bottle and have three glasses and then have the rest of the bottle just sit. With a Coravin, you can do that. And a week later, a month later, you can enjoy the wine again. Yeah, we've been talking about it a lot on the show. And for those who have not heard our conversations about the Coravin, it's just a device which allows you to stick a needle through the cork, through the foil, everything, go down. It injects argon into the bottle. The wine comes out and the, the wine inside the bottle just remains pristine. It's a and great device. Argon is the magic ingredient. Yeah. Before, when we did a similar thing in trying to do that with nitrogen, nitrogen, nitrogen is yeah. very good, but not nearly as good. Argon makes it magic. We're here with uh, Michael Mandavi, and I want to talk about about what you're doing now, specifically not just your wines, but the partnership that you've created. That's really magical. We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Stay tuned. Grape Encounters is 100% estate-grown. We have, however, removed the pretentiousness and added a healthy dose of fun. Living in and broadcasting from one of the world's finest wine regions makes it virtually impossible not to make frequent references to the multitude of amazing things going on here on the central coast of California. Grape Encounters Radio has built one of the world's most unique wine bars so that you can have the opportunity to come to the city of Atascadero and enjoy great wines and equally good conversation with me and other visitors. Best of all, my favorite hotel in the area is literally right across the street the historic Carlton Hotel with accommodations that are both beautiful and affordable. The Carlton Hotel takes you back to a glorious time in California history. And now that the wine industry has ushered in yet another exciting new chapter here on the Central Coast, you can experience the best of then and now. Book your accommodations at the lovingly restored Carlton Hotel in Atascadero. Then, let me help you plan daily excursions that will create a lifetime of unforgettable memories. You'll find a link to the Carlton Hotel at GrapeEncounters.com. For years, I seem to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. 
Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. As a lifetime wine lover, I think I own practically every conceivable wine gizmo and gadget. Now I've put together a collection of some of my very favorite things so that you can take your wine obsession to the next level, just like me. From functional to pure fun, check out my favorite things by clicking the store banner at GrapeEncounters.com. That's Grape Encounters, like CloseEncounters.com. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio, where we tell you things your parents never taught you about wine. But don't blame them. Grape Encounters wasn't around in those days. I have just scratched one thing, one very important item off my bucket list, the opportunity to sit down with Michael Mandavi. I am just thrilled to death to be here, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to our listeners. Wow. Well, it's fun to be with you and a pleasure to be able to speak with your listeners as well. So let's talk bucket lists for a second. You have done just about everything you could possibly do, I think, in the wine business. What's on your bucket list that you haven't scratched off yet? Let me tell you, the bucket list for me in the wine business is watching my son and daughter grow with the style of wines that they like and not trying to please dad or mom. Having them do what they enjoy in the wine business. And it's really interesting. I think the wines I make are wonderful, world-class wines that really appeal to my generation. The neat thing that my son and daughter are doing now is making wines that appeal to their generation and the foods that are available today, not the foods that are available yesterday. So the millennials are driving a great deal of the growth in the wine business right now. What is the difference between a baby boomer wine, a Gen X wine, and a millennial wine? To me, it was interesting. When I started selling wine in the 70s, I wouldn't waste my time trying to sell wine to anyone under 50 years of age. Really? Because they were not into wine. No, wine was not cool. Wine was not cool. It was only, to me, elderly people back then. Today, I won't waste time trying to sell wine to anybody over 40. Wow. Because the young people today trust their palate. They taste something, whether it's a food, another beverage, or wine. If they like it, they text or tweet their friends. If they don't like it, very often they text or tweet their friends. They trust what Mother Nature gave them. They trust their palate. They have more fun and more enjoyment with food and wine than my generation did because my generation was always trying to do the right thing. Do I have to use this fork or shall I have the fish before the meat? The millennial generation aren't confused by that. And they're having a much higher quality of life. And I think it's a great opportunity for my son and daughter in the wine business to create wines that they truly enjoy, that maybe some of the classic winemakers would say, well, that's just a wine you want to enjoy and drink today. Well, that's what people want to do today. 
Exactly. The average life of a wine from the time it's taken off the shelf in a retailer <laughs> to the time it's consumed is what uh, the average is a day, I think, right? Oh, yeah. It's way under a week. Don't yeah. drink it on the way home, though. Do not uh, do that. Yeah. Try to make sure that you uh, shut the garage door before you open the wine. Okay. Now, I had a winemaker give me a bottle of Petit Verdot, single varietal Petit Verdot. One would expect that wine to be big and full of character. This Petit Verdot was dull, flabby, and almost undrinkable. My glass and my wife's glass sat on the coffee table, and we cringed at the thought of finishing this bottle of wine and contemplated whether to dump it down the drain. And with a last-ditch effort, took a tiny bit of sugar, and I put it in the glass, and I stirred it around. Magic happened. Magic happened. Should I be put in prison? You should be uh, put on a pedestal. <laughs> okay. If wow. the wine does not taste good to you, adjust. I was thinking as you were speaking of a couple of things. One was, if you have some Cabernet or Merlot that was open from the day before, right. blend in a little Cabernet or Merlot. Adding the sugar changes the whole chemical evaluation, if you will, of all of those components and will take a harsh, bitter wine and make it soft but not sweet. And the key is not putting in too much sugar, just a pinch, and that will take the edge off. Conversely, if a wine is a little too sweet, take a few drops of lemon juice yes, and put it in. A, what a brilliant just, idea that is. Do you do that? It, I do that on a regular basis, Seriously. unfortunately. They're never my wines because my wines would not be Your wine unbalanced. would not be in the bottle if it wasn't right. perfect. And so many people find wine to be such a sacred thing that it's like you don't mess with it, you don't touch it. But why sit there and suffer through a bottle? That's what I don't understand. If it doesn't taste good to you and you're in a restaurant, send it back. It will not cost the restaurant a penny. The wineries want you to enjoy the wine. If any wines are returned at a retail store or at a restaurant, the winery replaces them. We who make wine want you to enjoy the wine. Wait, say that again. If a wine needs to be replaced, you as the winemaker... The wine producer replaces producer the wine. going to replace the wine. It so goes, don't feel bad for the restaurant. It, the restaurant is happy. They'll drink the rest of the bottle. Then they turn the bottle back and say, this was rejected by customer A, and we replace it. And the nice thing is, believe it or not, there is honor among the food and wine industry. They don't just sell bottles of wine and say, oh, this was returned. We have an integrity with the food and wine industry that people should only drink wines that they like. The wine could be perfect, but not to your taste. Send it back. Okay, let's talk about the transition from a mass-produced, and I don't say that in a negative way, but a wine that was created in tremendous volume, one of the most recognizable wines on the planet with your name on it. The company then sold, the Mondavi name is back, and you're producing several different wines. And you also have a partnership that's very interesting. Just take us through what you're doing now, and if you could compare it to what you were doing and tell me about maybe the added satisfaction fashion you're getting. What we started out doing was my father, myself, one other person involved in making the wine and taking pleasure in the creative arts, if you will, of doing that and then sharing that with people. Our company grew dramatically to where all of a sudden we were a multi-million dollar company doing a lot of business with investment bankers, attorneys, nothing that I wanted to do or was trained to do. So my brother, sister, and I decided we either have to buy ourselves back or sell the company 
company, we sold the company, and then reinvented ourselves 12 years ago. We started a small wine company here in Napa called Michael Mondavi Family Estates, where we produce the M Cabernet Sauvignon, the Animo Cabernet, and the Emblem and Isabel Mondavi wines. And we have a second business to import wines from family-owned, family-run wineries. We represent 17 families from Italy, Spain, Austria, and Argentina, and France. And what's really fun now is we learn about viticulture, grape growing, and we learn more about winemaking techniques from these European partners that we have. So not only are we representing, marketing, and selling their wine to the better hotels, restaurants, wine shops, we're also having idea exchange with their winemakers. So interesting. And to prove that point, earlier today, you took me up to Atlas Peak, where you're growing these amazing Cabernet grapes, and brought along one of those partners. And it was very interesting, the exchange of ideas. So it's not just about selling the wines, there's a lot of dialogue that goes on. How does that take place? For example, Lamberto Frescobaldi and his family, when I visit Lamberto, we spend half the time in the vineyards or in the cellars talking about what they've done lately to improve the quality of the vineyards, to improve the winemaking, to understand the style of wines to complement the foods today. Wine should be the slave of the food. Food should not be the slave of the wine. So as the foods change over the decades, as they get more fresh foods, more delicate flavors, of the fish or the chicken or the vegetables. The wines have to complement that. But it's okay, is it not, for the wine sometimes to drive the meal? In other words, I have this amazing bottle of wine that I'm dying to drink. For me, it's going to be all about that wine and the food is going to be secondary. Is that okay? Yes. On special occasions, you create the meal to complement the enjoyment of that wine. But about 90 plus percent of the time, the food is fleeting. It's spring or it's summer or it's fall. What are the fresh ingredients? If you're at a restaurant, what is that chef's specialty? What does he or she do best that you truly enjoy? The wines are going to rest. They're going to be good for the next few years. You don't have to drink them tonight. So special occasion, wine should be the master. Other occasions, the food should be the master. So can I have permission to do that, let's say once every other month then? Whenever you want. Okay. Let's talk about the difference between the wine that you're making for the, I don't want to say older generation, but your peer group. More of the traditional style wines. Right, versus the wine that is being made and blended by your children. Well, I like wines that if you enjoy European wines and the Bordeaux wines or the Cabernet-based wines from Tuscany, the Super Tuscans, etc., they have a more firm structure, a little sharper tannin in the finish. Most of those wines really do well with anywhere from 5 to 15 years of aging in the bottle. So I try to produce wines that will do better after being in the bottle for a number of years. My son and daughter are trying to produce a Cabernet that you can enjoy today that'll be beautiful for the next five to 10 years, but you don't need to age it to enjoy it. Okay. You put me to a test down in the wine cellar and you You asked, did pretty well, by the way. <laughs> tell him how I did and what the test was. Well, the test was with the emblem wine. I asked him to tell me, A, how many varieties were in the wine and then to tell me the approximate percentages of each. I fell a little short on the number of varieties but, yeah, by a couple. By a couple, but the percentages you did and the varieties you chose were all the right varieties. And it was pretty close on the percentages. You were pretty close. Yeah, you and know, within a, a margin of error. Now, don't tell my son or daughter this, but you did better on that test than I did when they had me do it. 
<laughs> Man, I can die now. I can't believe you just said that. Oh, it was oh, fun. That's so awesome. I was letting my brain tell me more about what they were going to do than my palate. You allowed your palate to talk to you. And when people are tasting wine, turn off your brain and let your senses tell you what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Hey, we're going to come back with one more segment with Michael Mandavi. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. You're having a Grape Encounter with David Wilson. What a way to spend the day. If you make April your month to do some California wine tasting, your friends will surely be green with envy. That's because throughout the month of April, California wines aren't just red, white, and rosé. In April, you'll discover just how green California wines are, too. April is California Wines Down to Earth Month, and wineries all over the state are celebrating the state's leadership in sustainable wine growing with fun and educational events everywhere you turn. California has one of the most widely adopted sustainable wine growing programs in the world, with more than 70% of California's wine growers and winemakers committed to practices that benefit the environment, employees, and neighbors. And best of all, the quality of the wine is simply superb. From Earth Day wine and food festivals and green wine trails to vineyard hikes and horseback rides and special tastings, find out more at discovercaliforniawines.com. Just click on the tab that says April is Earth Month at discovercaliforniawines.com. For years, I seem to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Nestled between world-class Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo wine countries, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the humble heart of the Central Coast. With access to endless wine country adventures, including wine and olive oil tasting tours, artisan farm experiences, food, wine, and cultural events, historic Atascadero's cozy and oh-so-friendly atmosphere make it the perfect home base for Central Coast tourists. Discover more about the heart of the Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. Money may not buy happiness, but it will buy you some very good wine. And if that doesn't make you happy, you need to be listening to a self-help show, not Grape Encounters Radio, with David Wilson. All right, every once in a while on Grape Encounters Radio, you have a conversation that you wish would never stop. And that's the kind of conversation we're having today with Michael Mandavi sitting out here on a beautiful Napa day. Let's talk about how wine has changed and evolved because there's something really obvious that seems to be happening. And we were talking about the Emblem Wine and the blend that your son and daughter put together. There was a time when you didn't leave the family, meaning that it was all Rhones or it was all Bordeaux, but now anything seems to go. Is yeah, that okay? it, Are you okay with that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, when I was starting to make the wines with my father, I had to make the wines in the style my father wanted for the Cabernet or the style my father wanted for the Chardonnay. So we were always under a, a directive, if you will, 
or a style restraint. What's so wonderful now that's happening with the younger winemakers, my son and daughter, is we've thrown off those restraints. And what we say to them is make a Cabernet that you really want to share with your friends at a meal. Make it for you. Make it for you and your friends at a meal. You know, that's interesting because what I think you're saying is trust your own instincts. If you like it, other people will like it as well. Absolutely. My grandmother taught me this 50 years ago, and I forgot it for 30 of the 50 years. Thank God I finally remembered it. I presented her a glass of 1969 Cabernet Sauvignon Reserve from the barrel that I'd made that I was so proud of. And I said, taste this, Nona. And she tasted, she goes, Michael, make good wine. (laughs) And I go, Nona, don't you like it? She says, no, I like it, but make good wine. She was the typical Italian grandmother, five feet high, five feet wide, and the best cook in the world. And I said, what do you mean? Expecting her to describe Cabernet Sauvignon. And she said, Michael, it's very easy. When you serve this wine to family and friends, if they drink a second, third, or fourth glass, that tastes good. But if they only drink one, you go back to work. (laughs) That's her description of a good wine. Did you grow up in a traditionally Italian family? Yes. You know, eat the Italian food? Absolutely. I I always talk about there's a smell that I would walk into my grandparents' house, and it would be the smell of garlic simmering in olive oil, the sauce simmering on the stove. That was one of the most comforting. Your home. You can relax. Exactly. Yeah. So the Mondavi name, one of the things that kind of caught my attention is your daughter has retained the Mondavi name, even though she's married. Yes. Now, how valuable is the Mondavi name? I mean, I know that's a personal question, but... It's valuable when you want to get reservations at a restaurant. (laughs) Um, It's a burden when you want to have dinner for two, because the wine steward or the restaurant owner or the maitre d' wants to sit down with you and talk about wine all night. But we are so thankful that our family over the years has given so many people pleasure through the wines we produce. Your family has a very strong reputation for being humble, for being very regular people. If there's one thing I've learned today that is absolutely the truth, you're a regular guy. Well, we put our shoes on one at a time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. So what are your hopes for the future of the Mondavi name? Do you think that it will go on for generations? Are you hoping for that? I think it will go on for generations. My cousins at the Charles Krug Winery are doing a wonderful job. My brother and sister and their children at the Continuum Winery, with the Mondavi name involved with Continuum, are doing a wonderful job. The family sold the Robert Mondavi Winery, and to date, the Robert Mondavi wines are still made by the same winemaker that was there when we owned it 14 years ago. So the wines are still consistent and good. They're doing a nice job with the wines. As long as they continue doing a nice job with the wines, I will applaud them. And they've been good stewards of the brand and of the wine to date. And I hope they continue. So your uncle just passed away. At 101 years. 101 years old. And it was oddly surreal when we met at our rendezvous location and there was a newspaper rack there uh, and the headline story was about your uncle passing away. What was your relationship with him and how was it during the time when he and your father were feuding? You know, the interesting thing is my uncle and aunt and my brother, sister, mother, father, and I grew up within 200 yards of each other at the Krug Winery where there were two homes. And the feud did not go to the personal level. The family, at least once a month during the lawsuit, would have dinner together at my grandmother's. 
Seriously, so your father, so they, your father, and your uncle were in the same room together. Yes, they I, wouldn't I, talk I about the lawsuit. That. And what a lot of people don't know is, for the last twenty years of my uncle's life, the last fifteen years of my father's life, they would get together at least once a month for lunch or dinner, just the two of them, to just be together. And it got hysterical near the end of my father's life because neither one of them could hear. <laughs> Both of them were shouting and laughing and just having a ball together. Is there any wine left from that barrel that they made together? Unfortunately, the family, it was all sold at auction, and the family right, sold the, the whole auction, barrel. Yeah. So the family don't have any of that wine, but I hope that some of the people who bought it have some because that was a spectacular wine, and it'll be beautiful for the next 10, 15 years. So you tasted it. Oh, yeah. We, we had the luxury of tasting the blends before it was finally barrel-aged and bottled. Are you where you want to be right now, or is there something else? If I were anywhere else right now, I'd probably be in heaven. <laughs> well, don't do that. <laughs> you're, you, you're a pretty spry guy. Mondavi's live for a very long time. Well, my daughter-in-law essentially said, if you're going to marry a Mondavi, you better really love them because they live forever. <laughs> <laughs> Longevity runs in the family. It does. My cousins and I have a challenge. All of us want to outlive our Uncle Peter <laughs> at 101. 101. How was he at the end? Up until literally the last two months, he was in good shape. Two months ago, he went to the office, climbed up two flights of stairs, and signed checks. He was still hands-on. Honest on. to God. And it was amazing. And I saw him about three weeks before he died. We had a nice conversation. He got a little tired after about 10, 15 minutes. He said, Michael, I think I need to take a nap. And that is how my uncle and I said goodbye. Wow. It was beautiful. He was not in any pain. He was forgetful, but he didn't have dementia or Alzheimer's in the last few years. What a life, what a he life. He was so blessed oh, and a good man. I hate to say it, Michael, but now you and I have to say goodbye. We do, and I, I, I look forward to seeing you in the future. You know what? I have had so much fun today. We didn't really get too much opportunity to talk about the tour of the vineyard and some of the other conversation that we had, but I'm sure we'll talk about it as time goes on in the show. I can't thank you enough. It's just been one of the best days of my radio career, and I so appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for taking the mystery out of wine, keeping the magic with so many wonderful people. Uh, thank you. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. I don't think we could have packed any more into this show. We will be back here next week. I don't know how we're going to top this, but we're sure going to try. And that's going to do it for this very special edition of Grape Encounters from the home of Michael Mandavi in the incredible Napa Valley, California. You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition.